Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is the 28th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. Today I'm taking you to Tokyo in Japan. My guest is Dr. Alice Lau and she is a postdoctoral researcher at the National Institute of Infectious Diseases, Tokyo. Alice was born Malaysian Chinese and did her veterinary degree in Malaysia. And then she moved on to a master's degree in South Korea. She has worked on tick-borne diseases in wildlife and quite a bit more. Welcome to the show, Alice. Hi, Kat, and hi, everyone. It is my honor to be here. Alice, you have lived in several different countries in Asia. How many languages do you speak? Fluently, that would be three, the Chinese Mandarin, Malay and English. And I can also speak and write in Japanese quite well now since I have been living here for almost seven years. And then there is Korean, so five. Wow, that is pretty impressive. That's awesome. And we will get to that a bit more about living in different countries and what that means. But first, let's chat a bit about your WDA experience. When did you join the WDA? Since 2019, when the WDA, the Asia-Pacific Sessions, was established. What's your favorite WDA-related experience? I have to be honest that I have only joined the WDA meetings online and then the meeting of WDA Australasian sections in 2018. But I first heard of WDA in 2014 at another conference and then I met some people from WDA in other conferences. So I would say what I have experienced with WDA has been uh, very good and kind people I have met and interacted with so far. And currently you have a position within the Asia-Pacific section of the WDA. So tell me, what is your position and what, you, what are you hoping to achieve? So I started as a student representative in 2019 and then the international representative and now I'm the newsletter and WhatsApp editor. So it has been not easy to stay committed and have the committee running actively in these few years, probably because we are quite a small and new sections and we not so many member yet from these regions. But I do look forward to having people from these regions who hear this podcast where we get in touch with any of the WDAAP officers if they have an idea and want to do something for the sections. And me, myself, I would be really happy to connect with them. Great. Yeah, fingers crossed. I hope your section will grow in the next few years. And after your vet degree, you did two years of clinical work at the teaching hospital. And afterwards, you moved on to a master's in South Korea. Why did you choose to go to South Korea? I have another friend who actually applied for the scholarships and then went there. Overseas studies have always been my dream. So when choosing the countries, I'm thinking between the Korea or Japan. I very much want to still stay in the, the Asia so I can go home easily. So that's also the influence from that friend. So I applied to these Korean scholarships and then uh, I went to Korea. Yeah, nice. And it was actually quite difficult to get into that program in Korea. What made it so tricky to get in there? 
So they have the scholarship program, and then it was a fully funded scholarship uh, program by the Korean government. But in my case, it was a two years master degree course. But you have to do a one year Korean language program because the livings in Korea, you need certain uh, degree of the Korean language. So in my case, I did one year Korean language program, and you have to study and pass a certain level of Korean proficiency test before you could enter the graduate school. So that's uh, probably a uh, difficulty there. But if you enjoy learning a new language, then it's probably is fine. Do you enjoy learning new languages? I do actually. I did not know any Hangul, any Korean singer works before I went to Korea. But I really enjoyed the classes, and they organize a lot of cultural events and trips during my one year Korean language studies. So it was quite fun, and I met a lot of international friends also, and and we studied together. <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds really cool. Yeah. So, and after your masters, you weren't done with your your travels and moving, but you moved to Japan for your PhD at the Hokkaido University in. Hokkaido. So was it like your dream after you lived in South Korea for a bit to check out Japan and see what's life like there? So the funny thing was my supervisor, when I was doing my master's degree in Korea, he was a Japanese. So he's a Japanese professor teaching in Korea. He is the one recommended me to come to Japan. And I made up my mind after I visited Hokkaido, Japan. So Hokkaido is the northernmost island in Japan. So I really liked the place after visiting and I decided to come to Japan. So I applied to the scholarships, I applied to the graduate school, to the wildlife and biology laboratory, and I have a fully funded scholarship. So I came here. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And in your PhD, you studied tick-borne pathogens and the microbiome of ticks. So I've done quite a bit of microbiome work in my PhD as well. So I'm very curious about that topic. What did you learn about the microbiome of ticks? There have been a lot of publications actually on the ticks uh, microbiome. So in my case, probably just a little bit introductions about the ticks microbiome. So ticks carry a very complex microbial communities and they are largely dominated by non-pathogenic microorganisms. So ticks, they can acquire these microorganisms from the environment and also from the host uh, they are feeding on. So in my study, I compare the microbial profiles of different tick species that I collected from Sarawak, Malaysia, also between different life stages of the ticks. But they find significant variations between the different genus and then particularly also the different life stages. And also if the ticks harboring Borrelia, they're causing the Lyme disease, then the microbial profile will be very significantly different. And we also managed to identify the primary symbionts in each tick species. These primary symbionts probably is necessary for the ticks to support their reproductions, their diets, and so on. That is super interesting. Are those very specific bacterial species that are symbionts, or is that a whole community of different bacteria that they really need for reproduction and digestion? Yes, for some tick species, you will find like, for example, Coxilla, but this is not the one that's causing the Q fever. So it's just a symbiont in the tick species and they harbor in really high abundance, for example, in the female ticks. And they have certain functions that have already been studied and published in uh, other publications. So very, very interesting. You will see different microbial profiles in different tick species and even in the different life stages because they have probably serving different functions in ticks. 
Oh, wow. That is very cool. Mm. And briefly going back to what you said earlier about those ticks being infected with um... Borrelia. Thank the, you. Exactly. Yeah, yes, you can, disease, you, uh, yeah, can read, you can read my thoughts. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so cool that they have a significantly different microbiome. It's almost as if the Borrelia are like some kind of bully that like, you know, changes around the whole microbiome. I wonder if that has an effect on the tick as well. Like, did you find any evidence? I wonder if the tick minds that, like, you know, there's one tick that has Borrelia and the other one doesn't. Does that mean it's healthier for the tick not to have it and to have a different microbiome or are they like neutral to that? So I did not have any evidence in my study other than knowing that the profiles, the microbial profiles different because I did not go into the functional studies like to study whether the high abundance of these Borrelia amount can cause suppressions in any other bacteria and so on. Or maybe the bacteria has something to do with the transmissions that I'm not sure. I did not have any evidence in my study. But I think I believe other studies on other uh, pathogens, not necessarily Borrelia, they have found some things like that because it's like a competition sometimes in the ticks. So if one is abundant, the other one may be suppressed, including the pathogenic ones. Mm, super interesting. I have to admit, I feel very ignorant because when thinking and doing microbiome work, I had never even thought about that this might be something relevant for ticks as well. So I'm very fascinated right now. The study of microbiome of ticks, did that help you or does that help us in any way to understand disease transmission from ticks better? Yes, we have to know that because the pathogens is only for us humans or maybe for animals, but in ticks, they're just microorganisms for them and they may or may not have any functional uh, effects to the ticks. Knowing the profiles and knowing whether uh, they serve any functions or not probably can help us to control the disease. In some publications, they did actually prove that the abundance of one bacteria actually suppressed another one, including the pathogenic one. So I, I think that's uh, something that can help with the disease uh, control and so on. Yeah, I'm already thinking about like some kind of vaccine for a tick that you kind of you know, immunize them with a good microbiome so they won't be vulnerable to any pathogens like Borrelia. But I guess vaccinating ticks might not be very practical. So you have also done quite exciting field work in Borneo. Tell me a bit about that. What exactly did you do in Borneo? So first of all, I was born in Sarawak, Borneo Islands. So I went back to my home state for the tick sampling and rodent trapping, actually. I always enjoy field trips in general. So the field trips I have in Sarawak with the Malaysian students and also the staff from the university there were super memorable experiences, actually. So I depended a lot uh, and learned a lot also from them uh, for the planning and preparations for a field trip. And they were really helpful throughout. And I'm really thankful for them because we went to the primary forest and also to the oil palm plantations, actually. So they have much more connections and they also have a lot of experience on how to identify the rodent species, for example, and also the trail where to put the trap and so on. So it was really interesting. And also because I learned about vegetations and even the palm oil fruits, you could actually like eat them and so on. So it was really fun and interesting. And what exactly did you sample on your trip? 
the tick samples and also the rodent sample. We trapped the rodents. Ah, so did you look at uh, potential pathogen transmissions between the ticks and the rodents? Yeah. Ah, let's move on to your current position. So I know you can't talk about your current work at the National Institute of Infectious Diseases Tokyo too much, which is totally fine because it's still in progress. But can you give us like a little teaser what your research is about just in general? So I, I belong to the virology department here in the National Institute of Infectious Diseases and in the laboratory of neurobiology. So we, we do have the routine work, like the responsibility to check the rabies vaccine, for example. And then my focus of study is still on the tick-borne uh, viruses right now. So most is particularly on the molecular mechanisms, like investigating the functions of certain proteins in the virus. Right. And you mentioned rabies. Is rabies still a problem in Japan? Yeah, rabies is under control here, but there's vaccinations requirements. So for us, we just investigate the lot of the vaccines before they can be released. So it's not very frequent in one year, maybe like one or two times here. Yeah, so it's not a huge issue, but it's still present. <laughs> yeah, And maybe for travelers and so on, uh, the vaccinations, if they require rabies. And yeah. also like me, because I'm working with the virus, so I have to be vaccinated. That makes sense. I'm glad you're vaccinated. That's good to know. Let's go back to your career path. You've lived in quite a few different countries in Asia by now. What was it like to having to adapt to the language and to the culture of the new country every time? I feel a little anxious and probably a little bit lonely uh, in the beginning when I went to Korea. Mainly because of the language barrier, because I did not know any single of Korean word. But I think eventually I did well. And I really enjoyed my stay in Korea and also met uh, Korean friends and then joined some activities. I went to volunteer in the zoo and so on. So for Japan, I thought if I could do it in Korea, then I should be fine for Japan. So And so far in Japan, I am enjoying myself here. It's really convenient and comfortable to live here. And, but of course, it's not that easy to make friends every time when you move. And it's like a start over again. But I think because I am very open-minded and always have a positive attitude toward new things, which actually makes me able to live quite comfortably in different countries. <laughs> That's awesome. And tell me, what are your favorite things about Japan that makes it comfortable to live there? It's generally very safe country. And then they have very convenient transportation system. Uh, and most of the systems are quite convenient here. So it's quite comfortable living here. Of course, you still have the language issues. But if you are in the academies, in the universities, you get supports from the other members in the lab, for example. Thanks so much for being my guest on the show, Alice, and to tell me um, about yeah your journey and about your research. It was an absolute joy talking to you too, Kat. And thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>